being a dumbass backpacker is exactly what I needed to do. You know, I needed to stop being so self-conscious and just throw myself into the landscape in in Thailand or, or Laos or other countries that I was in and be willing to make mistakes because almost by definition, travel and especially international travel means that you're not an expert. You're you're in someone else's country and you're learning things by being vulnerable. Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to episode 137 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I think I have been inspired by this episode's guest for longer than any other guest I've had on this show, which is really saying something. This week, we're joined by Rolf Potts, a prolific travel writer of some renown, whose work has been featured in every imaginable place you would expect a rock star travel writer to have been published, and who also has his own excellent podcast, Deviate. But my intersection with Rolf and the reason that he changed my life is because I read his book, Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel, while I was at my first Burning Man in 2008, and it set me off on an arguably ill-advised few years of adventures and discovery. I didn't really have a stable address for quite a while after that, and I have Rolf to thank for that, for turning my eyes to a whole different way of being than the sedentary default that I had grown up with. And, you know, it's funny. It's like, obviously, a lot of people talk about what a life-changing experience Burning Man is. And it was also, for me, I wrote an essay about it, giving into astonishment that I will link in the show notes. But really, I, I think that Rolf's book changed my life even more. And it's just an enormous honor for me to have him on the show and to to get to talk with him at length about the way that travel and travel writing have both changed over the last 20 years of this new century. But before we begin this very special episode, I just want to thank every single person supporting this show on Patreon including new patrons Douglas Goitz, I hope I'm saying that correctly, and David Huber, joining the ranks this week. Maybe I'll see the two of you fine folks in the Future Fossils Book Club discussion that we're having this coming Monday, February 17th, which is open to all patrons of the show. We've been doing these every month or two for the last year and they've been super fun this one is on jeff vandermeer's masterpiece of post-apocalyptic biopunk born which is a novel as beautiful as it is terrifying and i'm very very excited to discuss this book with you folks I cannot overstate my gratitude to everybody who helps support the show, who helps me keep it independent and ad-free and unbeholden to the, the whims and constraints of business partners so that we can be as weird and as wandering as we can be so that we can present a truly diverse slice 
of the human imagination to those unborn archaeologists I like to believe will one day find these conversations. If you haven't checked out the Patreon page, please do. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. There's a ton of free music and a presentation I gave last year on the future of evolutionary theory. And for the folks supporting the show, there are now over a dozen secret episodes as well as a psychedelic coloring book inspired by my years as a scientific illustrator. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite a collection of weird stuff on there. But um, go check it out, even if you're broke. Also, a moment to thank everybody who has been reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, sharing it on social media. If you like Future Fossils and you're looking for a quick and easy way to help other people find the show, then I hope you'll consider taking a moment to spread the good word. Last item is a regular reminder that Future Fossils has a Facebook group for which I apologize. God, maybe I should have started a Slack channel or something instead. I guess it's never too late. But uh, yeah, we have excellent conversations in there. I share cool stuff in there pretty much every day. And if you want to leave feedback about the show, it's a great way to get in touch with me personally, or you can reach out by email to futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. And I'm always glad to hear from you and always willing to consider your suggestions for future episodes or whatever. Thanks all so much for listening. I hope that you get as much out of this conversation I had with Rolf Potts as I did. It's just amazing to talk to somebody who has as much worldly experience as this guy. And I found him in conversation to be every bit as exciting and inspiring as his writing is. This episode was actually recorded back in August. I apologize for taking so long to get it out. But, you know, the cool thing about inspiring long-term thinking is we have a kind of a, a built-in understanding here, I hope. I hope Rolf understands. <laughs> anyway, thanks, and I'll see you in a couple weeks. Yeah, I just I just posted to Facebook some notes that I wrote to myself in 2001, like my ambitions, and they were just insanely ambitious, you know, like I, I wanted to write Marco Polo didn't go there in 2001. I hadn't even conceptualized vagabonding yet. And that there's like two screenplays and some sitcom stuff. And I wanted to go to Antarctica and Cuba and New York. It was just crazy. Um, <laughs> um, but it was fun to see. But you've done those things, right? I mean, most of them. Yeah. You know, I haven't, I've written some screenplays, but not the specific ones that I had in mind to write. I, I would still like to write them. One of them is a Western set in sort of prehistorical Wichita. Uh, and so the screenwriting stuff hasn't really played out just because my career hasn't gone in a screenwriting direction, but all the travel stuff has happened and the book stuff, the travel book stuff has happened except for Antarctica. I haven't been to Antarctica. Huh. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You're one of the the few people, I think, since you just mentioned the, the prehistory of, of Kansas, you're one of the few people who I think would enjoy the fact uh, that I, I'm, I'm a KU graduate. My wife's a KU graduate. And I was thinking about the Jayhawks and then uh, the K-State Wildcats. And there's a creature, uh, the, the forest rachis, which is one of these giant ground running predatory birds 
that is often reconstructed with very similar coloration to the Jayhawk and lived in Kansas at the same time as these like saber tooth cats. And it's just, I was like, I don't think that the school mascots were intended to be sort of, uh, accurate to the, the fossil record, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's awesome. Of course, that's all tied up in the civil war, but, uh, they have that great natural history museum at, at KU. They should do an exhibit on that bird. <laughs> I should bring that up with them next time I, I go back to visit. Anyway, yeah. dude, um, it's, I'm really glad that we lined this up as far as the outline. Like I told you over email, I've been, I've been binging on deviate your show like pretty much the last few days last week or so and i I've, I've looked for every episode that covered a topic i was interested in talking with you but i mean unless you want a like a flight plan before this i'm happy to allow the conversation to take us wherever it goes no i'm i'm happy to to meander as necessary and i'm curious to know which podcast you ended up um listening to so oh man quite a few but the ones in um that seemed sort of most relevant to the some of the major themes of this show are kind of irrelevant to the conversation. I don't know. Maybe we can maybe we can pull it together because I think you know I think I mentioned to you that I'm the child of a. My father worked in the travel industry for forty years, and I'm very ambivalent about tourism. And I really appreciated the episodes of your show that examine you know the effects of global capitalism on the the uniqueness of place and the ways in which in, in which travel is a benefit you know my father's very fond of talking about citizen diplomacy mm -hmm. uh, and you know the importance to the individual of getting out of your environment you know what i found so inspiring about vagabonding in particular yeah just you know there's there's so much at stake around traveling now that I don't think was obvious, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, at least it wasn't obvious to me. And I, you know, so I'd just like to take this time to, to, you know, sit with you in the questions about, you know, what it means to be a human alive in this time and place and, and what this place even is, you know, mm -hmm. what here means to someone who has devoted his life to traveling the, the planet and, what you've seen and, and and there's a sense in which this show invites everyone to consider the the historicity of their lives and like in, in what ways certain you know like that you're not going to go on like this forever like that maybe there maybe there could only have been one rolf potts like there could only have been one beatles you know mm -hmm. uh so <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll follow your lead. I mean, this is all stuff I've been thinking about quite recently, actually, in addition to having covered it in Vagabonding years and years ago. So I'll just follow your – we can just follow our interest as the conversation goes. All right. Well, so let's start in your interest. What has been on your mind lately? Well, I've, I've come back to, uh, to the U.S. after being abroad for mostly three months this summer and then three months over the winter. I haven't been in the U.S. very much. And this is a big anniversary year for me travel-wise because 25 years ago in 1994, I did my first real vagabonding trip. I lived in a van. They call it hashtag van life now. I had no idea that's what I was doing at the time. And that was 25 years ago. And, you know, I thought at the time I was going to do that trip and get travel out of my system and live my normal workaholic American life. And of course, that didn't happen. But I revisited my journal from that year 
And I actually recorded a podcast that hasn't come out yet about that. And it was just really interesting to see the passage of time. You know, I, I don't think I've ever been at a point in my life where I've had 25 years perspective on anything except my very, very young life. Um, and then it's also a 20-year anniversary of my first big Asia vagabonding journey that, that really culminated in the book Vagabonding. And so I guess I've been thinking about travel and, and, and my life and my career and everything in the context of the greater wash of life. Because after 25 years of traveling and 20 years of travel writing, I'm sort of this veteran, you know, I'm this old silverback guy who is not um, the young guy striking out in the dial-up internet age looking for adventures, but a guy who's seen a lot and has uh, some perspectives and is trying to figure out what to do with the next 25 years. So one of the more interesting episodes for me, uh, I think, was like right in the heart of this was your episode on revisiting the essay that you wrote on storming the beach, like trying to break into the, the film set for the beach and back in the 90s and how that story couldn't really be written. You know, the story of, you know, the discovery of a magical isolated place and, you know, like the, the conversation that you had with I forget whom about it was Jim Benning. He was the editor at World Hum, a travel writer and editor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the conversation that you had about how you could even write a story like The Beach now in a world that is so connected to the Internet, you know, even in the, you know, the the 10 years that inspired by your work, I've been I'm trying to get out and see the world. I've seen a radical change from the internet cafe to, you know, the global data plan. And, yeah. and yet I don't want to be like prematurely old in lamenting the loss of something. Like there's this thing about, it's the same with like biodiversity. It's like, I, we're in a moment of extraordinary change and creativity. And I don't want to simply focus on what we're losing in this process, but it, I don't know. Grief or acknowledgement does seem important here. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, if, if I, of course, one of my podcast episodes last year was talking to Kevin Kelly, the, you know, the futurist who co-founded Wired Magazine. He he went vagabonding himself in the 1970s, and that itself was a different world from the 1990s. But what it feels like has changed since 1999 is just the hyper-personalized world in which we navigate all of and broadcast all of our experiences, because the personalities who ended up on the beach, in the beach, you know, these young Western travelers who found the secret place, it's the same demographic who couldn't keep a secret in the, in the age of social media, right? Like uh, that you would have to find some, some fairly Luddite isolationist young people to have a version of the beach work in this day and age, because people just couldn't resist how awesome it was to be at this tiny beach in the age of, of Google maps and all these other, other technological things, that sense of isolation doesn't really exist as much anymore. And I think it's good to mourn that. And it's good to keep in mind how, we still have the option of traveling in an unplugged way, that we don't have to be looking at our screen uh, every 45 minutes as we travel. And I'm speaking as a guy, I was in, in Asia this winter traveling, and I looked at my screen a lot. You know, I've been sort of preaching uh, for the moderation of technology for a long time, but smartphones are designed to make us addicted to them and the apps they contain. And so it's an ongoing challenge. And I think that we still can travel like we did in 1999 or 1979 or maybe 1879, but we have to be disciplined in such a way that we're not seeking those 
home comforts or that self-affirmation loop that comes with life through a screen that is just so easy in this day and age. And I'm not going to knock it because everybody does it and I do it too. And I don't want to condemn a younger generation, which seems to be the duty of older generations. But there are things that we're losing as we make travel on one hand easier and more efficient, but also more mediated by screens. I didn't get a smartphone until 2013, but I got one specifically to go to New York City to uh, beta test Google Glass. Like I, I had leapfrogged the whole thing and basically had to faceplant in the future uh, simply to have this experience. And it was the first time that I was ever in a big city where I was using Google Maps, walking navigation to get around. And I was reading at the time, I was reading Doug Rushkoff's book, Present Shock, where, which, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge inspiration to this show about the incommensurability of the organic time of the human body and the digital time of high frequency trading algorithms and internet routing packets and so on. And there's something in that uh, collision between, I don't know what you'd call it, the made and the born, or really just two different time scales where, you know, the digital scales kind of indefinitely. At least it's not as obvious how we see the energetic impact of all of this this data transmission uh, compared to the attention impact of of being like drinking from the fire hose. But one one place that it seems obvious is in the way you know that national parks are starting to ask people not to take their cameras out at certain spots you know to draw attention and this uh, you know I'd love to hear you wax on the I don't know the responsibility as a travel writer or as a you know these days like a social media influencer or podcaster in drawing attention to something cuz like I remember living in Austin when the New York Times food section wrote a wrote a review on East Austin as like an undiscovered gem and then it just like real estate doubled you know and like Venice is sinking under tourists but you have a much more sort of nuanced and uh, a balanced view of the effects of these things. Yeah, actually, real quick, what, what was the Rushkoff essay or book that you were oh, talking about? Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now. Okay. I haven't read that, but I'll have to because that sounds interesting. Um, you know, I think that this whole influencer culture and social media travel culture has a way of flattening things. And I don't know this scientifically in terms of data, but it feels like it is an iteration of what used to happen when the New York Times and Glossy magazines influenced people's travel habits. That in a way, what is popular is ever more popular in the age of influencers and top 10 lists and, and, and bucket lists. Because I traveled in Sumatra this winter, and that's a famous part of the Backpacker Trail, the Banana Pancake Trail, the Lonely Planet Trail, going back to 20 years ago when I started traveling. And I felt like I mostly had it to myself. For whatever reason, top 10 culture and influencer culture has not touted Sumatra, which is an amazing California-sized island in Indonesia. Of course, Bali is the flip side. I think I think you can go to Bali and feel like you're in Southern California at times because there's so many Americans there. So I think what has happened is, you know, we used to criticize the way glossy magazines, the New York Times would influence things. But now that it's more of an audience-driven market, more now that, uh, you know, your average Joe off the street doesn't need a New York Times to influence people if he or she can 
can amass a following, it's done the same thing. It's it's sent huge crowds of people to the same places as have always been sent to places. And so you have now a, a situation where Bali has more travelers than it did in 1999. Sumatra has less travelers than, they, than it had in 1999. And both are fascinating and very worthy of travels, Indonesian islands. Now, this is just sort of an ex- experiential observation. I'm not sure if there's this dichotomy happening everywhere in the world, but I suspect that's sort of the case. You know, I, I suspect that this flattening effect is saturating places like Venice and Bali, but it's also leaving the less photogenic, perhaps, or the less well-covered places wide open for travel. Hmm. I guess, you know, that's that's an interesting, um, maybe it's like a just total chaos and, and that, you know, things get their, you know, I think like laying a field fallow, you know, to, to introduce a, a kind of a Kansas metaphor into this, that, you know, that maybe there is some sort of higher dimensional, uh, regulatory mechanism as things come in and out of fashion and that the land huh. gets to breathe and cultures get to restore themselves a little. I don't know. Well, it's, it's probably human nature as much as anything because people, they, they want to get off the beaten path, but in the end, they don't really, you know, they want to feel like they're off the beaten path, but have cool, good looking people around them, you know? And so, um, so that, I think that's how influencer culture ha- has ha- has influenced things is that people, you know, as they get their travel ideas from what's cool, it's that idea of FOMO. I don't know if anybody uses that phrase FOMO anymore, but the, the fear of missing out, you know, that, that we, be it a glossy magazine article in 1999 or 1985 or social media driven trends in 2019, we want to go to beautiful places where we feel great about travel and be and have our own experience in a place that's cool and 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 sought after. And that's part of the reason why 20 years ago I wrote Vagabonding about going slow and taking things personal because I think one solution to this problem is taking a year to travel or taking a lot of time to travel so that you're not pressured to go to the air quotes cool places and just discover things as you will. Because like my Sumatra trip this winter is an extension of the travels I did in Southeast Asia in the late nineties. And I just never got to Sumatra. I've always wanted to go there. And I went there and and the place was, uh, was amazing. And I took my time. I spent a month there. And I think that anyone who has time to just very slowly and deliberately travel the world is not going to be beholden to this top 10 list FOMO Instagram influencer way of thinking when they travel. Mm. You know, I read your book, Vagabonding, right before, uh, like I was reading it, I think, at Burning Man in 2008. Speaking of FOMO, this is, but Burning Man Hmm. is happening right now. And uh, a lot of my friends have graduated to JOMO, the joy of missing out. Okay. (laughs) I love that. There's, um, I mean, because obviously the world is huge, like you can't see everything. And that was that was a big thing that I learned trying to attend every event in the Burning Man, like calendar, like schedule book that I was there for the first year, just like trying to absorb it all and failing miserably and sinking into an ease with allowing the contingency and the magic and the happenstance to uh to to carry me around and i felt like that was a that was a big piece of that slowdown that you're you're talking about and when i when i uh hitchhiked out of burning man to san francisco for no excellent reason after that i spent two weeks just sort of backpacking in the the urban 
wilderness of San Francisco, like with, with no phone. And, um, that was really my introduction to a sensitivity to my own intuitive guidance. You know, should I turn left or right when I leave the apartment this morning? So, I mean, first of all, I just have to thank you for interrupting my life in such a way as to allow that sensitivity to take root and, you know, and to really introduce what I think of as, as kind of a, a magical way of, of being in the world. It's a, it's a way of being that seems really crucial, but it's not, it's not in my experience, a way that a lot of people travel. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad it influenced your way of thinking. And, you know, it's, I wrote that book a long time ago now, but so many of the ideas have become ever more relevant, I think, as in a weird way, FOMO culture and, and social media culture has made us consumers of everything more than we used to be. You know, even the idea of having a list of things to do at Burning Man and, and sort of having option paralysis and maybe over planning a little bit. Well, now in the Instagram age, not to pick on Instagram, you can have that you can have that feeling anywhere you know i use instagram and you can take out your phone in a beautiful part of the world and see people having awesome experiences usually slightly fictionalized and filtered <laughs> in other parts of the world and you can have that 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 burning man option paralysis that should i be doing this or that feeling almost anywhere in the world and so i think this organic idea of going slow and being a non-consumer of your travel experience and making mistakes and 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 being wrong and and getting sick sometimes and just and making your way through on on its own terms is is ever more important because i think sometimes in the instagram fictionalization of our travels or even in the weird ambitions that we get through the often fictional world of social media and fomo culture we can end up having, you know, our actual travels are compromised by our, our dream travels or our performative travels. And so just, again, unplugging, if that's what it takes, and being where you are is ever more important and ever harder to do. Mm. You know, you you had a, an episode with Matt Kepnes, where uh, there were a couple of really juicy things that came out of that conversation. One was, you asked him about the value of allowing yourself to get scammed. <laughs> that's a, mm. that's a really good instance here of you know knowing when you're sort of off the map when you're out of out of the familiar you know comfortable path and uh yeah i don't know i'd love to i'd love to hear you uh expound on that a little bit it's yeah well i think i think and that that's something that comes from his book although it's something that i have thought about quite a bit myself because i think like i think back to my very the very first months of my travel back in 1999, my Asia travel back in 1999, I was so self-conscious about being a rube, you know, about being a dumbass backpacker. Um, when being a dumbass backpacker is exactly what I needed to do. You know, I needed to stop being so self-conscious and just throw myself into the landscape in, in Thailand or, or Laos or other countries that I was in and be willing to make mistakes because, almost by definition, travel and especially international travel means that you're not an expert. You're, you're in someone else's country and you're learning things by being vulnerable. And so I think that getting scammed, which is something that happened 
you know, even I remember being very sensitive and a lot of first time backpackers are this way of, of paying too much, you know, of, of paying tourist prices instead of local prices for a bottle of water or a plate of pad thai. And sometimes you get the price right and sometimes you don't, but it doesn't matter because as I think Matt said in that conversation that, you know, local people make a little bit more money uh, when they scam you and they feed their families. But then also you, you learn a lesson, you learn your own fallibility and your own vulnerability. And I think someone who projects a perfect travel life, be it on Instagram or through travel writing, is having a less, you know, a shallower experience than someone who's who's fucking up from time to time, from someone who's who's stumbling into experiences that aren't perfect and that involve being scammed sometimes or being lost sometimes. I mean, this, there's a triumvirate that I've come back to more and more in recent years that didn't occur to me when I wrote Vagabonding because they were just normal things that happen to travelers. But now I, I come back to again and again that you should allow yourself to be lonely, lost, and bored because being lonely is harder to do when you can turn on your phone and chat with somebody on the other side of the world. Being lost is harder to do when you have Google Maps helping you out. And being bored is, is ever more hard to do when you have 30 different options just on your smartphone, including podcasts and, and, uh, readings and, and, and social media that if you, you can actually travel around the world for a year and, and only superficially be lonely, lost and bored. And I could go into a, a whole volume of benefits from this thing, including an article I, I recently read about how being lost is good for your hypothalamus, that it, that it, uh, produces problem solving in the brain uh-huh. that makes you healthier. Um, but yeah, th- those three things, uh, I, I, I come back to again and again because they're harder to achieve and they, they used to be these negative experiences where people felt self-conscious for being lonely or lost or bored. And now it's like, yeah, that's how you actually get out of this feedback loop of performative travel and get into real travel as it's existed for the past 5,000 years. So there's another book comes up on this show a lot. Uh, Nicholas Carr's The Glass Cage, Automation mm-hmm. and Us. And in it, he interviews, I forget who, a, a neuroscientist who says the problem with turn-by-turn instructions on Google Maps or whatever is that the human memory system is built on top of our geopositional and orientational neural networks. So, like, when someone has Alzheimer's, that's the that's the the foundation of the house that goes and one of the first things that you lose is a sense of where you are and that he was concerned that people who grew up always being directed from place to place never having to find their own way in the world would develop memory disorders would lose you know would would basically build their house on sand because those those networks would never be properly developed or they would they would age prematurely and when i got back from two weeks out there backpacking on the west coast in 2008 i encountered uh hakeem bay's epic book that supposedly inspired burning man uh the temporary autonomous zone poetic terrorism ontological anarchy and other essays in which he introduced me to this notion of psychogeography and this notion that moving through the landscape is like moving through your own mind and your own memory and that as you revisit a place that it becomes more and more layered so i'm just curious you know as as someone who has spent 
25 years out there layering memories all over the world. <laughs> where, where do you have to go to get lost? And uh, yeah, like what is that sense of like your own memory palace basically being this like stretching over the whole surface of our planet? Yeah, well, joyfully, I don't have to travel very far to get lost in, in, in part because I think all of us are losing uh, you know, are losing our ability to be to find our way independent of our of our data systems. You know, of our turn by turn maps, so that we can be in an, in an unfamiliar place twenty miles from home and be deeply lost, because we've fallen back on on these other systems of doing things. And you know, Hakim Bey talks about the Derive, which is similar in some ways to flaneuring, which is the old Baudelarian Parisian idea of walking through a city, in this case Paris, not from point A to point B, but just in, in search of experience. And I've been teaching that concept in the classes I've taught in Paris for the last 15 years, and I actually practice it as much as I can. Paris is a great city for getting lost because it doesn't have a Jeffersonian grid like these wonderful American cities, like the one in Kansas I grew up with. So like in, in Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up, I could take you know, three left turns, and I'm basically basically back where I started. Three or four left turns, whereas in Paris, three or four left turns, and you are maybe two miles away from where you were. I did uh, in Paris. I did some cycloflaneuring. I got uh, one of the Valibes, one of the bicycle shares that you can get, and I rode around the city for two hours, and I found this beautiful fountain that I was just so excited that I'd never seen before. And I tried to figure out what city, what part of the city I was in. And after about five minutes, I realized I was about 200 yards from where I started. I'd gotten so lost that I hadn't realized that I'd circled back to my starting point and I'd seen this fountain in a completely brand new way. So I think that there are ways through the you know the idea of the derive or the idea of flaneuring or psychogeography, which is another thing I teach sometimes in my classes, you can discover places in completely new ways that aren't prescribed because I think it's easier to find prescriptions. You know, in, in, in 1999, you would tear a page out of Conan Ask Traveler or the New York Times and you'd have your little guide to a place or use your lonely planet. Whereas now you have, a you know, there's a thousand things telling you online what to do. Whereas um, there, I guess there are creative ways of, of making yourself lost, like, like, ha, like Hakim Bey said. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to suggest that because I've been wandering for 25 years, I'm somehow an expert in being lost. I think that being lost is always just a, uh, it's something that, that, that is tied into serendipity and dread sometimes. And it's actually, again, using your hypothalamus and getting yourself unlost that you get into that problem-solving process that is such the joy of travel, and it helps you orient yourself. And, you know, just one more thing. You were talking about the research that done on the brain, that there, there actually is a generation of people, and I'm not, I don't mean to knock them, but a generation of people who has not had to use their hypothalamus in that same problem-solving spatial way that all of humans have always done. So I think there's a test group. They're about 20 years old right now, my nephews, I guess. And we'll see. We'll, you know, we'll see if dementia hits them any earlier than it has previous generations. And that's sort of a grim thing to say, and I'd like to think it doesn't. But uh, yeah, I think it's worth considering how we use our brains in different ways. And this is the key thing, is the travel, if you allow it to, allows you to use your brain in a completely different way than you use at home. And that's, that's sort of the gift of travel in this day and age, is that you have the option of not being into those same patterns, including brain patterns, that you're sort of trapped in at home. Mm. 
There's another thing here, which you brought up in your conversation with Matt Kepnes about the sort of ephemeral nature of friendships and romantic relationships while traveling. And, you know, it seems as though this is one of these things that uh, was, and it probably still is much easier to experience when you're out there in unfamiliar settings in the world. But it also feels as though over the last few decades that, you know, I tend to think of a historical age as kind of democratizing a rare, luxurious or exclusive experience, you know, for better or worse. And that the pace of change in our lives today is such that even and this is not new to our cohort of the people alive, but this is a, a, lo a longer arc and a larger trend that in general, it seems that people are more mobile, uh, more likely to relocate over the course of their lives again and again. You know, I, I moved like pretty much every year throughout my, my 20s and, and that there's a sense in which having to deal with the, I don't know, I don't want to abuse this word, but I, it often comes up as like a metamorphic nature to our, our era. It feels like the lessons of navigating those spaces and accepting the sort of fleeting nature of experience is a little more obvious now or a little harder to avoid. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how we analyze this era in like 20 or 30 or 50 years. You know, like what exactly were we experiencing in the 2010s? Because I feel like this has been a fairly transitional decade where like news has become way more clickbaity, for example. And the, the whole idea of digital nomad, it's, it's funny. I think my name is on the digital nomad Wikipedia page as an influencer in that world. Digital nomad is, is, is more of a normal thing. You know, when I wrote about the idea of taking your life on the road for long periods of time and vagabonding, it was a really weird idea. And now it no longer is. And there are huge resources for digital nomads. And in fact, there are little colonies um, for digital nomads around the world. And it's and that's not going to reverse itself. At the same time, yeah, it would be fun to, to go into the future in 50 years just to see how this era is analyzed, because I think people have always been worried about the pace of change. And if you look at sea changes, the turn of the 19th into the 20th century had huge sea changes. Like the telegraph was brand new. Airplanes were, were just coming into form. Automobiles were coming into form. The idea of that space no longer mattered was for the first time in human history something that the people had to contend with. You know, the idea that, I guess trains had been around for, for several decades, but the idea that you could, that the pace of going from one place to another and getting information from that place was no longer a walking or a horseback pace, but it was like a train speed pace or an airplane speed pace. And so I think 100 years ago or 125 years ago, people were having the same pace of change conversations that we're having now. And in fact, there's a fun episode uh, podcast called The Pessimist Archive. Have you heard of The Pessimist Archive? No, but I'll uh, make a note of it. It's fun because it looks at past moral panics about how oh, novels are going to, you know, tear down morals and elevators are terrible things. And keep in mind that elevators basically enabled skyscrapers 100 years ago. It's a fun podcast. I think it's a little bit millennial centric in that I think basically, you know, the people who create the pessimist archive are saying, look, stop blaming millennials on on the end of the world because we've always talked this way. But there's a little bit of self-congratulation 
you know, uh, sort of millennial self-congratulation saying, oh, look, what we're doing is normal because people complain about the same things 100 years ago. It's like, well, you know, I think we should have the conversation about how technology is affecting us. Because if if not being lost is compromising our hypothalamuses in ways that might lead to increased dementia, that's worth talking about, right? But in concept, I love the concept of the pessimist archive, even though even with its millennial self-congratulation, because this conversation is worth having, and it's worth making sense of what happens to us as humans when the way we travel and the way we think about things and the way we communicate changes. So, yeah, I, it's it, it's funny that suddenly I'm this guy who's on the Digital Nomad Wikipedia page and has 20 years of perspective. I don't know if I can make prognostications, but I would say that even even if you don't prescribe any changes for yourself, just being aware of the tools that you have and how you use them compared to how we didn't have those tools 10 years ago, 100 years ago, and we did fine as human beings, and maybe even leave deeper spiritual lives as human beings is worth considering. Because, you know, I ended, or one of my later chapters in Vagabonding is about the spiritual nature of travel. And I, I don't think... I was able to predict how now more than ever the spiritual nature of travel is what is compromised if we micromanage our travels, if we perform our travels on social media at the expense of our actual experiences of travel. But it is, I mean, I think we even, we have sort of performed our spiritual lives in ways that are counter to our spiritual life. Sometimes our, our spiritual selves benefit from just being still in a place and not worrying about what other people think of it or how we might communicated on social media and just being there with ourselves for ourselves is something that is at danger of being lost if we get too tied up into this technological moment we're in. Mm. You know, there was a, a, a section of the Tao Te Ching that I remember being completely surprised by the first time I read it and, uh, you know, in college and, and feeling kind of two ways about it and it's come to make a lot of sense to me that you know they talk about when uh when a people are of the the way you know when they are sort of at home in the the nature of things then they can hear the the roosters crowing from the next village over the hill and not be in, inspired to curiosity about leaving and going over there and seeing the thing and there is there is something about the whole like go west young man trope that speaks to, I think, a sort of restlessness of the spirit. And I'm sure you've given that deep thought. And it takes it takes it into this place where the question of, of why we travel is, I think, really worth examining under, you know, a, a close scrutiny. Yeah, well, I think it, it's hardwired to a certain extent. Humans have had a lot of n nomadism you know, hardwired into the way they've lived for for thousands and, and, and tens of thousands of years. I think the idea of the rooster crowing in, in the other valley, I, I think there's always been little pinpricks of curiosity that lead us to other places in a way that has a certain elegance that our current situation doesn't. I think oftentimes we open up our phone and we see 20 beautiful places that we could be. And instead of packing our bags, we just feel self-loathing and, and, and anxiety because we aren't in those places. <laughs> and so now more than ever, it's easy to forget that you just take one place at a time and be where you are. Again, that's a very spiritual idea. But yeah, it, it and, and then I guess there's there's a certain wisdom that comes to not being not chasing your curiosity, not chasing that rooster crow every time the rooster crows of 
keeping in mind that a travel experience is personal enough, if you allow it to, that eventually you're going to find a place where you're happy or you're going to find a rhythm that makes you happy. And you're not just chasing after the wind, as they say in the Bible, or, or as apparently the Tao Te Ching says, um, you know, chasing after the rooster crows in, in these other valleys. But navigating your life in a way that's vulnerable but wise, I guess, you know, in a way where you can appreciate where you are while being aware of where you aren't and the possibilities it has uh, in such a way that it, it, you know, that it enriches yourself and gives you a sense of community, you know, uh, which is something that can be lost in a more nomadic age. And of course, as I said before, there's digital nomad communities that are literally popping up in places, and those are maybe easy to make fun of sometimes. But it talks about the natural need we have, not just for community as something that can comfort us, but community as something that we can give back to or that we can um, ally ourselves with other people in the community and, and maybe help out people who don't have the same privileges that we have in the community and that we can you know, sort of collectively find ways for us all to live better lives. And I don't, I don't want to sound too idealistic and, and airy-fairy about that, but I think that's one of the things we have to keep sight of as we travel around the world is obligation to community, even if community is sort of an abstraction. Yeah, not just your own community in whatever sense, Yeah, or, or widening the sense of community. There's something that you said just now in, in the, the pinpricks of curiosity arising that this might I don't know, this is kind of a complicated machine I'm going to build in midair here. But I had a, one of my buddies in college was just a, a total, you know, very open kind of uh, relationally promiscuous person who, after 10 years of just being, you know, a, an, <laughs> a total animal, found someone and really wanted to settle down. And he asked me, because I'd been in a relationship for a long time at that point, he asked me, you know, how do you, how do you find yourself comfortable with one person? Like, how do you devote yourself? You know, and I think a lot about this in terms of like the exchangeability of person place, you know, to view a person as a as subject or as a location or as a process and the ways that different aspects of our humanity are disclosed through that play. And, you know, for me, it's like, I realized that you know, living in one place is kind of like locational monogamy. And, huh. and that if you are someone who craves novelty and craves fresh stimulation, that those two things are maybe kind of related, you know, that, that maybe you don't need to seek out new human relationships. I said, you know, maybe you, you, you need to travel more together, or maybe uh, going <laughs> to knock on the door of your conversation with Ari Shafir that I was like, frankly, you know, you could just eat a handful of mushrooms because that experience is so novel. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a reason why the psychedelic experience is talked about relentlessly, uh, almost exclusively in terms of travel, in terms of huh. like a mind travel. So, so the cinch on this whole thing is that, I think that the internet itself functions or like acts on the human brain in certain ways in the way that psychedelics do, like increasing the functional connectivity between different brain regions, incre increasing the connectivity between different societies and cultures. So there's this, there's this thread that I've started noticing in the conversation around travel 
and virtual reality and telepresence and how, you know, some people think, well, we, we obviously it's impossible to send everyone out into space, but we can do space tourism in VR or like, you know, clearly this this tourist town can't actually support the number of people that want to visit it. And then, like you said, there's the, you know, being frozen or overwhelmed by the, the available choice and how that for so many people, you know, if you, you go into the grocery store, you see 400 different kinds of salad dressing, you're going to just curl up in the fetal position or go home. Like it's easier to not do it. So I don't know. I think, you know, that what is, what have you noticed about this sort of uh, reflux where the availability the access to sort of vicarious travel experiences can have the opposite effect on people where it's like we're we're actually more kind of comfortable staying put or it's easier to deal if we do well it, it could be that it's not as cause effect as i sort of implied it was earlier that people who look at 20 beautiful places on instagram and feel anxiety and go nowhere or maybe they maybe they have a lot in common with the guy who had a subscription to National Geographic and never left his county in 1972. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, when in, in my early years of travel writing, I was writing for a for a national magazine, a, a, a big one, and I was putting together a roundup of advice for Asia, and I was really stressed out because I wanted to give useful advice, and the magazine was sort of pressuring me into giving sort of dipshit like where to get a cappuccino and Kathmandu type advice, which I, which I didn't care about. And finally, the editor had, had to say, look, you know, at the end of the day, our readers aren't going to these places. They just want to sit on the toilet and read an article and feel like they would know where to get a cappuccino and Kathmandu if they went there. And that makes them happy somehow. And they get on with their lives and they don't go to Kathmandu. <laughs> And so I think that this thing still happens that, you know, I think that option paralysis in, in the, um, in light of all of these, like, for example, Instagram images, I don't know if that's increased option paralysis, but it's it's like a different iteration of the op- option paralysis that happened when people were reading magazines before or watching television shows or listening to the guy in the town square talk about the time that he took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, that at, at the end of the day, I guess I guess these days we have we have more mobile lifestyles. We have more options than at any point in, in human history. And I would guess demographic probably people they're definitely moving more to work and I, I would suspect that they're traveling more and and maybe they're traveling long term more because it's it's more possible and there's more information about that but for every person on you know who's out there doing it there's three people who may have always existed who just dream about travel and don't and I guess that's one thing that I've done one purpose I've served all these years is encouraging those people who are feeling anxiety at home, just sort of gently reassuring them that it's okay, that they can do it. They, that they're, it's okay if they make mistakes. It's okay if, if nobody else in Skokie, Illinois is, is vagabonding right now, that you can just go out and do it. You don't need permission from anyone from your, but yourself. So first of all, excellent. Uh, <laughs> second of all, I want to take a kind of an angle into this conversation because you know we've made it so far without really touching on the obvious which is that for you travel and writing have always been kind of of a piece really intimately interwoven and you know i really enjoyed uh, your podcast episode with lavinia spalding 
about mm-hmm. keeping travel journals. And I feel like whether someone has the the opportunity to you know break out into the world or not, I you know I hope that by this point in the conversation I've I've at least tipped my hand to the fact that that you can expose yourself to to novelty, to new ways of of seeing. Like like you said your story about the fountain in Paris, like that the the truly weird or unfamiliar is always right there. You know, it's in the banal and and so there is a there's a sense in which not you know that even the very familiar will disclose some f- new face to us if we sit down and attend to it with the eye of a travel writer and i'd love to just hear your thoughts on how how writing for you lives as a practice and and how you feel that it has deepened for you over the years and what you feel the, the greatest rewards have been What's well, funny, circling back to, to an earlier conversational beat, when you were describing just now about, you know, noticing these these glories in the familiar, that took me back to, to the mushrooms, you know, to the psychedelic experience where you don't even need to live, leave the living room to realize what a miracle chairs are, for example, <laughs> um, or, you know, paint or just and it, it's it's easy to, to blow off as drug talk. But there's something beautiful about realizing that this room that you may have been in many times or in the case of my friend, someone who lived there, is just seeing the beauty and miracle of, of a chair or, or the, of piano music and the way it makes you feel. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great thing. And I think that much like psychedelics, travel allows you to see familiar things or, or maybe even see practices, you know, to, to, to go to Thailand and to spend an afternoon watching people farm and talking to farmers, then realizing that, hey, in Kansas, I never do that. I'm surrounded by farm country. And I, I haven't really thought about that just because it is familiar. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of ways that, that travel can can make you aware of that. And I think, I think writing is a way of paying attention. You know, I think that could be one thing I talked about with Lavinia about in the context of journaling. And, you know, this year for all my travels in both of my travels in my three months in Europe and my three months in, in Asia this year, I kept journals for the, like just normal, boring journals without travel writing ambitions. And it was really interesting. You know, it was really interesting to keep track of the rhythms and thoughts of, of a day in these places. 20 years ago, I was getting my travel writing career started. And I think that was tied into paying attention, but also, for lack of a better word, ego a little bit. I mean, I just remember taking a lot of pride in the fact that I was writing things that people were reading, uh, that I had suddenly landed this columnist job with Salon. And, you know, it's funny, I you mentioned a podcast where I talk about Storming the Beach, which was an article that I wrote 20 yeah, 20 years ago, um, and was in the Best American Travel Writing 2000. It's easy to disparage one's younger self sometimes, but that was well-written. That was a fun article. That was a fun adventure. And so I think just as a ritual, writing has been a way not only of forcing me to or compelling me to pay attention, but also of getting into adventures that I might have been too cowardly to get in before. And uh, if there's an advantage to social media, it's that it is that it they compel us to keep a record and to to see 
beautiful sights in certain ways. Although the cliche is that you take the same goddamn picture as everybody else takes, <laughs> or you or you sort of you, you you don't challenge yourself instead of challenging yourself through broadcasting your travels. And so, in its own way, even though I was writing five thousand word essays about travel, I was broadcasting my travels in a way that could be egoistic, but in a way that, in retrospect, was just delightful because I was forcing myself not only to pay attention to certain moments, but to make sense of, for example, what does it mean when a movie production comes to Thailand with the biggest movie star in the world. Leonardo DiCaprio was that at the time. And it's funny that, you know, that ended up being prescient. You know, they've had to close down Maya Beach on Koh Phi Phi uh, Island because too many people have gone there because of the movie The Beach. It's, it's just a, a weird situation. I guess I'm sort of drifting in this, situa- in this situation, but um, I guess <laughs> if, uh, if there's an advantage to what Lillian and I were talking about journaling is that journaling is private, is that you're paying attention for yourself and there's never a consideration of how many likes this journal entry is going to get or what your editor will make of it, but that it just you're paying attention in ways that you're cherishing this moment, this, this ephemeral moment, because there is also an existential aspect to travel, that there'll be a time when we're no longer alive. And how do we spend our days? How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And, and how do we spend our days in an extraordinary part of the world? And if you're just seeing this far side of the world as a consumer or as a performer of superficial media, maybe you're not living in a way that could be as full as if you are in the manner of someone on mushrooms, perhaps forcing yourself to pay attention into the beauty and the miracle of every moment that's out there. And again, that might sound a little bit hippy dippy, but I really believe that, that if you give yourself permission to embrace the miracle of the world and of life, then travel is a great vessel for living more richly. Mm. You know, you brought us right to the gate of the question that I love to ask people at the end of these conversations, because this show was inspired by this this notion of, of archival and the importance of the transmission of, of knowledge intergenerationally, both, you know, the, my own receipt of knowledge from my elders and then the sense in which me and everyone else, this the sense in which all of us will end up being fossils, you know, ancestors one day. And the there's a there's a sort of a weird tightrope that I'm I'm trying to walk here with hosting a public program, something that has analytics and statistics associated with it, but really regarding this from an archaeological perspective as something where the greatest audience is yet unborn. You know, where like there's more people studying ancient Athens now than were living in ancient Athens at the time, huh. you know, and, and to, to, to cast our own lives in this light, you know, like where you're, you're already sort of immortalized on the digital nomad uh, Wikipedia page and the salon archives and so on. But like, there's something about, again, to, you know, to bring up present shock and, and Doug Rushkoff, one of the things he discussed in that book was how Facebook keeps this indefinite history of our past. Google is trying to anticipate our moves further and further into the future. And it collapses time in a certain way, even as it expands the horizons of time in either direction, as our histories and our, our, our speculations get deeper. So there's this sense in which I feel like this show offers the opportunity for a profound meditation on what it means to live our lives in light of the unborn 
and our role as ancestors and historical figures. And so I, I'm, I'm just curious what that brings up for you and whether knowing that you have possibly anyway, I mean, not every, only a small fraction of dead animals actually got fossilized. It's kind of a, a privilege to be a fossil. So there's no guarantees, but let's assume that someone does dig up this recording in a thousand years or whatever. Uh, what would you hope that those unborn generations might learn from your life? Well, maybe just the imperative to live because life is all we have. Uh, and that's that's an old spiritual idea that, you know, it comes forth in, in many scriptures. But I was just thinking as you were saying it that, you know, the people who are unborn really deeply and with their full heart will not give a shit about us, you know? Think of... <laughs> Think about if you if you found an old book and you know with a picture of your great 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 grandfather and what he did in in Loudoun County, Virginia in the in the 1700s, how much time would you really spend with that information? And I and I mention that because my dad is a big family history nerd. Probably not that much. You know, my my grandfather who passed away in 2002 would have been a hundred last year, and I threw up some stuff about him for for the family on Facebook. And it, you know, it took up maybe five minutes of people's time, and then they got on with their lives. And so there's there's something disappointing about this, you know, the the fact that we, when we think about our great grandfathers, how much can we really say about our great grandfathers? Well, you know, when we have great grandchildren, they'll see Facebook as just this ridiculously archaic interface. I hope so. Uh, and, and they'll see us as just deeply superficial people, and they'll they'll get on with their own lives of falling in love and traveling the world and, and, and um, you know, whatever appeals to them as humans. So, so the bad news is that our great-grandchildren just deeply, deeply don't give a shit about us. The good news is that the imperative is that we have to live it now, you know, that we're not telling a story that somebody will read later on. And if they do read it, we need to remind those people, enjoy this story, but hey, nudge, nudge, live your life in a beautiful and meaningful way, because it's what you've got. And if you keep putting off things, be it travel or, you know, whatever, starting a family or, or, or going to the gym, if you put that off for too long, it's just not going to happen. And then you'll be somebody's great, great grandfather that they don't give a shit about. <laughs> so the spiritual imperative, I guess, is, is what it comes down to. Live your life in a rich way now. Don't worry about competing with the way other people live their lives, but just quietly learn how to enrich your life. That's beautiful, Rolf. Thank you. You bet. It's been a pleasure. Obviously, RolfPots.com. Are there any other places that you'd have uh, people go to behold you? Well, it's, I've had RolfPots.com for 21 years now, and it's sort of archaic to send people to a website. But I'm, I'm such, I have such a tortured relationship with social media that, that sending people to Instagram or Twitter We'll maybe get some current information, or maybe it'll get information that's three months old. So really, RolfPots.com or RolfPots.com slash Deviate, which is my podcast archive, as of right now, will keep you up to speed on things. Uh, and I am you know, weirdly and anachronistically pretty up-to-date on my website. So yes, RolfPots.com is the place to go. That's awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, good to talk to you. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is one of many illuminating podcasts available on the MindPod network. I recommend you uh, trip on over there and check them all out. For more episodes, show notes, and extensive copious extras, 
and head over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Subscribe to the show anywhere you go for podcasts. And I'm always happy to hear from you. Future Fossils Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And may your now be deep, wide, and wonderful. Until next time.